You are playing 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 6, The Ultimate Game. Hey, this is Remy. Our theme card this week is from the first data pack for Netrunner, What Lies Ahead, and it is the Identity Wizard. He is a zero link, 45 minimum, 12 maximum influence uh, Anarch Identity card. His ability is three recurring credits to use for trashing cards, and his flavor text is running is the ultimate game, and I get to make all the rules. A couple of other interesting things about Wizard. The artist is Matt Zeilinger, highlighted last week in our Maker's Eye segment. Uh, This is the first of his many identities that he'll be providing for the game. The model, if you will, for Wizard is Kevin Wilson who was the co-creator of the Android universe with the original Android board game. And Wizard is wearing a shirt that reads, It is pitch black. You are likely to be eaten by a Gru, which is a line from the classic, foundational, text-based adventure game or interactive fiction game Zork, released in 1977. Well, running is the ultimate game, and that is what the focus of this entire episode is. Running. Runners. Uh, There's going to be a big segment on runner advice for beginners based on a thread from BoardGameGeek in our Archive Memories segment. But since uh, we're up to what lies ahead, that is the first data pack, as mentioned, Introducing that into the 2.1 playgroup, so I'm introducing it here into the podcast, and so we'll be focusing on what the Reboot Project has done to the cards in What Lies Ahead on the runner side, and then we'll have a couple of small segments on the end, a new mandatory upgrades segment, and also a look at Enigma, looking at the, uh, the flavor of a card. But we'll start with a brief anonymous tip section, and that is this simple advice. Don't run last click. Now, one of the biggest Netrunner podcasts that ran for several years was called Run Last Click, and maybe you've heard of it. It's not good advice, typically. That's I think, part of the joke of the name of the podcast. Now, why don't you want to run last click? Well, the probably the first, the most important reason is because you don't know what's going to happen, right? If you don't know what you're going to run into, what if you hit something that tags you? Well, now you have a problem because you have no 
ability to clear a tag, and now it's the corpse turn. You don't really want to hand the corp a tag. It could be the end of your game. So that's the sort of danger that you're running into when you run last click. It could also be some kind of damage. Uh, maybe you want to draw again. You typically don't want to draw, you know, as your last click. As I've mentioned in a previous segment, drawing is best done first. But that's drawing for options. Uh, you might want to draw on your last click for protection. You know, maybe you are playing against Jinteki and you scored an agenda or stole an agenda. And now you're down a card. You can get that card back just for the, you're getting your hit points back, basically. So that's the basic suggestion. I've, try to avoid running last click. Now, obviously, there are always exceptions to, to every general anonymous tip. Now, one obvious exception in this case is it might only be the last click. It might be your last opportunity. The corpse going to win the next turn. Well, then you better run last click rather than sitting there and doing nothing. But, again, that's more of an exception than a rule. Archived memories. Here we resurrect old threads and articles from the early days of the game. And this one is called Beginning Runner Advice Needed. And the post was made by an Edward, Edwin Carrot. His username is Carrot, K-A-R-A-T, on BoardGameGeek back in mid-September of 2012. As you'll see, he's going to ask, what are some tips for the runner? And there are a lot of responses. And they seem like pretty good responses to me in general. Now, maybe you're going to listen to these and think, well, yeah, that's generally good, but this experience has borne out that this particular suggestion isn't a good one. Or maybe you're thinking, oh, you're missing one really obvious suggestion. If either of those things is true, well, I encourage you to reach out to me and let me know, and I'll include your suggestion or comment in next week's episode. I've taken this thread and sort of, uh, well, I've threaded it, basically. So I've, I've chopped it up and arranged it so that it makes a little more logical sense than it does as you're reading it. Anyway, here's the initial post. Carrot says, I'm a beginning player, and I feel like the corporation always wins. How is the runner supposed to accomplish anything before the game is over? There are multiple types of ice. So even by the time the runner gets an ice breaker, that only gives a chance of defeating one type of ice. But by the time the runner has several types of ice breakers, the game is nearly over, and the corp has amassed a ton of credits. What does the runner do? Bite the bullet and force the corporation to spend credits resing ice, even though the runner will likely fail to bypass it, which gives the runner brain damage, tags, or trashed programs? I just don't get how to approach the game as a runner. This first response is from username Chow Cho, C-H-A-O-C-H-O-U. He says, There's a losing position for the runner. A rich corp sitting doing whatever it likes behind banks of unrest ice. Now you recognize that as a losing position, 
you have to start following the advice already given in this thread, well, you, which you will hear in this thread. Bite the bullet and start running from turn one. In Texas Hold'em, there's a principle that you bet for information. Betting is how you get other people to describe the strength of their hand. Similarly, you run for information. Run R&D, and you get to see the corpse next card. Run HQ, and you get to see a card they have. Forcing them to res ice shows you what you need to break, and gives information on how badly they want to protect that server. Every credit spent resing ice is a credit not spent on gaining more credits, or upgrades, or advancement counters. A rich corporation is a dangerous corporation. You have to take calculated risks, that is, running, to try and keep the court player poor. Make them spend. I understand your frustration, but the moment you play the corp against an aggressive runner who is hitting everything, trashing your bit gainers, and stealing agendas all over the place while you can barely res a single piece of ice, you'll suddenly wonder how the corp is ever meant to win. Another early response from Matt Novak, his username Matui, M-A-T-E-U-I. Early game is key. Run early and often. Don't allow the corporation to freely amass credits. Force them to res ice and call their bluff if they have multiple unresed ice in a server. Often they won't be rich enough to res them all. Don't be too scared of ice. Don't run as your final action unless you're absolutely sure you won't get tagged or worse. If they're turtling and not creating any secondary servers, try to hit up their R&D or HQ. You need to stay on the offensive. Consider including all three copies of Special Order in your runner decks so you can quickly find the correct icebreaker you need in any given situation. When you're locked out of most of the servers, focus on your own economy. You'll need credits eventually, so it never hurts to have them. Just keep pressure on your opponent. If you allow them to call all the shots, they'll easily keep winning. You need to ruin their plans and force them to spend credits when they would like to, instead, hold on to them. A short comment from Ian Toltz. His username is Asmore. Run early, run often. Run on HQ and R&D. You should almost always be running on at least one of them in your very first turn, especially if your opponent hasn't protected them. Don't be afraid of damage, but make sure to keep your hand full. Force the corp to res their ice. Don't let them stockpile credits. At this point in the thread, the original poster, Carrot, responds. Uh, perhaps he's feeling, uh, feeling a little frustrated from the advice he's been getting. He says, the last time I played Runner, I did one run the entire game. I got two points, but also a tag which the corp used to trash my entire economy. After that, the game was effectively over. Note that the corp got lucky and got to res four pieces of ice for free in that game, 
while I didn't get any ice breakers until the game was half over. Only the archives were unprotected on turn one, and there were never unprotected servers after turn one. Add some good money cards for the corp, and you can see how brutal it was. Doing a run that you know you will lose seems counterintuitive. In other games, you would want to build up an economy instead of attacking right out of the gate if the defender has the advantage like that. And how often is often to run? Clearly, I wouldn't want to do four runs in one turn with no credits. Even a single run will suck multiple turns worth of credits. First response to this is Paul Imboden. His username is Opie. Answering the question of how often is often to run. Whenever doing so gets you an advantage, whether it's a possible agenda or forcing the corp to res ice at an inopportune moment. That is, they no now, now no longer have enough credits to res ice on another server, which you should then run. It helps to have a way to rid yourself of the possible bad effects, tags, damage, etc. But depending on the status of the game, you might not have that luxury. So drop the idea of that luxury sooner than later. Accept the fact that your advantage tends to shrink as the game goes along unless you find a revenue stream and plan to get those agenda points the only way you can. Plain and simple, if you're not running, you're losing. A further comment from Carrot. The corp goes first, so both HQ and R&D should be protected by the runner's first turn, with one action left for a card to increase credits. Mid-game, uh, that is, uh, when the runner can't just freely access any server. I'll talk about the phases of the game more next week. Mid-game should arrive before the runner's second turn. The first run can result in a tag or brain damage. One tag can effectively take the runner out of the game. Brain damage is a permanent disadvantage. Scott Muldoon, silent dibs, responded with this brief, meh, one brain damage is not a big deal. And you should have the click and two credits to handle a tag. Whereas Salva Slees, username I am Salvation, says, The only brain damage ice is Haas, and you can pass Haas ice by spending clicks. Just don't run with your last click? Carrot responds with, Nobody here has yet told me how often is often enough. I really have no idea what is reasonable. Please give me numbers. So Eric Steger, username Playroom EJS, says, I am not exaggerating when I say that your first two actions of the game should often be runs, HQ and R&D. Any ice the corp can afford to res two of, one for HQ, one for R&D, on your first turn won't do enough to permanently hinder you, and you need to keep the pressure on their economy by forcing them to pay to res them. It's absolutely worth bothering to run at a server with resed ice, especially when that ice doesn't end the run. For example, if I have a decent link or a few credits, I'll happily run against a resed Ichi 1.0, especially when I have no icebreakers for it to trash. Worst thing that happens is the trace, and that's defeatable. 
Uh, Paul Imboden again says, That's the challenge with the runner. There are no hardcore rules, just principles. You could run like crazy and fall right into traps and snares. On the other hand, you could play extremely conservatively and let the corp control the flow of the game. My general principles are, if it makes sense to run, run at least once per turn, at least. If I make a successful run at R&D and gain an agenda, I run against R&D until I don't gain an agenda. If all ice in a tower is end the run free, you have all the info you need. Suss out when you can handle the effects of the ice, break what you must, and steal like a madman. The corp has essentially said, yep, I don't care. Which could mean they can't draw the end run ice they need, or it could just as easily be a misdirect on their part. Reasons why I should run now include I have enough credits to break through a server and can access a car that has a greater than normal chance of getting me an agenda. I want to regain control over the perceived position of strength in the game. I want the corp to reveal information and lose credits that he could otherwise spend advancing agendas by resing ice. Reasons why I should run later include I need to restock my hand for health reasons. I don't have enough credits to make a successful run with the information at hand, plus a handful more for when he reses any unknown ice, and therefore I should focus on getting more credits this turn. Another server is a better target. I lack an icebreaker that breaks a known end-of-the-run subroutine. I want to lull the corp into a false sense of its own security. Save the last click of your round for housekeeping. Draw for cards you may have lost. Spend credits or resources to remove tags, and so on. And I like this. I like this sentence right here. The last click is me time. So from my perspective, there is no hard-coded number. There's just times when it is better to run and times when it's not. When I'm on the fence, it's because I'm worrying about the risk-reward ratio. And that's 90% of the game, figuring out that ratio for each run and reading your opponent's tells. What do you do when a court player drops a remote server with absolutely no ice? Well, me, I tend to run on it. It's usually a non-advanced pad campaign, which tells me I should save four credits before the run to trash it, or a snare, which tells me I should have a handful of cards unless the corp has no credits to activate it. Or maybe the corp is gutsy, or foolish, enough to drop an agenda out there that requires three advancements and hopes to res it all next turn. All I know as a runner is, in order to win the game, I need to be running. That's my path to victory. I should be doing it as early and as often as possible. Within reason. Another lengthy response comes from Brian Bankler. He says, one, your very first action as a runner should be a run. If you never looked at your hand and ran as your first action, you would be right most of the time. In general, I run R&D first, although this is less certain. 1A, if your first run was successful, no ice rezzed, 
you trashed a card in R&D, do it again. 1b, if your opponent rezzed ice and ended your run, or R&D was otherwise a dud, but you aren't otherwise hurt, run HQ. If you got tagged, remove it. If you took damage, draw cards. If your opponent rezzed ice, look at your hand and see if you have the appropriate icebreaker. If so, gain bits and play it. 2. Your last action is probably gaining a bit, drawing a card if you are under hand max, or playing a card to build your position. Don't make speculative runs as your final action. Being tagged or down cards when the corpse turn starts leaves you exposed. Making a run against R&D or any server that has no unrezzed ice or upgrades and you know how much it will cost, how much it will cost you, can be done as the last run, assuming you don't plan on getting tagged or damaged. Once you actually have some programs down, you have to worry about trash a program ice. If you have a sentry breaker and lots of credits, you don't have to worry much. I try to make at least one run a turn. In the early game, this is a minimum. In the mid-game, this will fall, as setting up a rig takes time. In general, I draw cards rather than take a single credit, unless I need every card in my hand and it would put me over the limit. You need a good credits and card engine. In the mid-game, I may fall to as much as a run every other turn, as I'll be dropping programs that cost me about five credits, so I'll need to gain them and draw cards. In the end game, unless I'm worried that the corporation can drop an agenda and win in a single turn, I'll be building up to make a big run or two. At that point, the real issue is worry about traps, like aggressive secretary. In the end game, you should be able to defeat any single fort once, but it's expensive. If the corp deck can win in a single turn, then you just have to bite the bullet and hit R&D, HQ, or Archives and hope to get lucky, or gain credits before the corp can win, or play a stim hack or two. If the corp is building an uber server of deep, powerful ice, you need to run it to force him to res it, then hit another server. If you can't get an agenda once it's installed, you'll have to grab it from R&D or HQ. You can, instead of runs, use forged activation orders and other tricks, but the point of early runs is to force the corporation to res their ice so you know what you are up against, and force the corp to spend their actions gaining a single credit, instead of more efficiently. Netrunner is all about risk versus reward. Until you've played, your judgment on this will be poor, so take risks, and learn which ones are good and which ones are bad. Don't play it safe. Another, another question from the original poster, Carrot. Also, how many credits should I have to make a run? At what point should I bother to install my first icebreaker and actually try to succeed at a run, which implies having money? Is it ever worth bothering to run at a server with res dice? Eric Steger responds to this too. If you wait to run until you have icebreakers, you'll lose. 
Forcing the corp to res ice, even if it ends the run, is often a net gain for you. It costs them X credits and just costs you the click for the run. Once you know what the ice you're up against is on any particular server, then you can start dropping the icebreakers you need and calculating exactly how many credits it'll take to break each piece. That's why exposing cars is so powerful, but if you don't have any exposers, just do it the old-fashioned way. Run it. Paul Imboden also weighs in here. Consider this position. It's your first turn. The corp has dropped only one piece of ice, and it's on HQ. This leaves R&D open to run for zero credit cost. It's open season. Run. But also, there's a pretty good bet that there's something in HQ the corp is trying to protect. Depending on how I was feeling, I might make a first-turn blind run on HQ with no icebreakers at all. If he doesn't have enough credits to res the ice, it's the same as no ice at all. And if he does res the ice, there go his credits for the first few turns, which gives me time to plan. If it's ice that damages me, say Neural Katana, I take the three points of net damage and march on. And I still get access to his hand and probably at least a 20 to 40% chance of winning some agenda points or trashable assets this turn. Sometimes a blind run is worth it. You should have enough credits to break any ice subroutines whose subroutines you don't want to suffer. That's the royal you. The desire to suffer those subroutines is, again, on a sliding scale. If the subroutines don't say end the run, you can plow right through any res dice. And if you've installed the right icebreakers and have the credits to pump them up, you don't have to suffer at all. You should also have a way to generate credits because you'll need them. So, when to drop an icebreaker? Whenever you have one in your hand that affects the resed ice on the table. Now take that economical part of your playstyle, calculate the cost-benefit ratio, and fill up your MU. The more variety, the better. But if the corpse got no ice that ends the run, and you're willing to suffer the effects, there's no capital N need to install any icebreakers. That said, you'll want icebreakers. Carrot again, the original poster, says, From everything I've read here, my last game was doomed from the start. The corp got four free rezzed pieces of ice and several moneymakers right away, and my first run got my economy trashed. Paul Imboden says simply, Yeah, that sounds like a crazy lucky draw out the gate from the corp. They happen. Brush that dirt off your shoulder and run. Scott Muldoon said, The corp did all this on the first turn? No. Then you had some opportunities to change the situation by running. As for your economy getting trashed, if you ran on your last click and couldn't avoid a tag, then you need to stop doing that. Simon Ray, username Revenant, said, what you are describing sounds like a dream start for the corp, something like hedge funds plus two pieces of ice that cost nine or less combined and not only end the run but also give a tag and damage. Even then, you can run both R&D and HQ 
forcing the corp to res them and spend the credits, and you can still spend your other two actions drawing a card and removing a tag. At the end of the first turn, you have three more credits than the corp and know what ice the corp has. In circumstances less than these perfect corp starts, you'll gain information about what is the next corp card and also a card they have in hand. If you can continue to run HQ and or R&D each turn, you can quickly work out what cards the corp has and suddenly you become aware of what ice the corp is laying and what agenda or asset options the corp is likely to be placing. Don't start as the runner thinking you need to set up an economy along with defenses and a suite of icebreakers. You need to force the corp to play your game. They will outplay the runner in the rush to set up a perfect tableau. Force the corp to res ice. It's not nearly as threatening as you think. But make sure you have clicks and credits remaining, ready to draw cards or remove tags. It's okay to win the game with no credits remaining. Use your resources wisely and don't simply draw a card or take a credit because you're not sure what to do. The final comment from Carrot. Oh, and I've played Corp. I won really easily, but my natural playstyle is conservative, defensive, and economical. And that's also why grasping the runner is really hard for me. Paul Imboden responds to this. Yeah, the runner tends to be the antithesis of conservative. In order to be effective in this game of cat and mouse, you've got to know when you're the cat and when you're the mouse. In the first few hands, the runner is totally the cat, and your job is to make the corpse sweat. Run. Make him res that ice. No ice means you've got free reign. You lose that advantage soon enough. Your job is to then get that advantage back, ASAP. That sometimes means moving, at times, one click sooner than you'd like, taking a risk to gain that advantage. Even with a fat bank, running is gambling, and gambling is odds. So assume a corpse deck is 20% agenda, 40% ice, and 40% other. Now, assess the battlefield. 100% chance of something hidden behind a remote server, but you'll probably pay dearly for it. 20% agenda draw of HQ. X% percent agenda draw of R&D based on the number of agendas seen so far in the game. Where is the best place to run? You start to get an intuitive feel. But there's no hard math for me outside of the percentages. It's all probability, intuition, and luck. I've got a feeling you'll be a fearsome runner once you grok your odds. Your position is better off than you think usually. So, you know, good luck. Then C.D. Harris, we have a couple of uh, longer final uh, comments here. C.D. Harris, username Amuk, A-M-U-K, who I believe is also one of the hosts of Breaking News, the Netrunner podcast. He said, runners have to be brash and probe the corpse defenses often. Conservative play will rarely work. The corp knows what ice he has out, but you don't until you run. Don't assume the ice is impenetrable. A lot of it just does traces or costs you a card. Roll with it and keep probing. Make the corp pay to res his ice. Oftentimes they won't, 
because they know they need the creds more for something else, or they've installed something they can't pay for. That's very useful information, but you can only get it by running. If you hit ice you can't break that ends the run, so be it. That's not a negative result. Some ice really does hurt you, but you have to take that risk. It's definitely going to hurt you if you let the corp amass a big stack of credits before you start running on him. The corp had to pay for that effect, and now you know what you're facing. You should have special order in your deck. Probing tells you what icebreaker you should go get. This is especially true in the early game, when the runner has the advantage. The corpse economy won't be set up yet either, and the more servers they have, the thinner their spread. Hit them as often as you can, even if you don't have many credits yourself. Once you've made the corpse spend to res ice, you can, almost, always jack out, if that's the prudent thing to do. How many creds you need, and how often you should run, depend on the board state. There are no hard and fast numbers to be given. A heavily defended server obviously requires more creds than an unprotected one. When running an unprotected server, you can go with none, or just a few creds to trash cards if you get the chance. Not required, just nice. By the time the corp has heavily protected servers in most games, you should have your rig largely set up. Then it's a race. But you won't win the race unless you run. I like that line too. The tension and constant need to second-guess the other side is part of what makes this game great. With some play experience, you'll start to get a feel for when you should push and when you should hold back. But you will have to push, or the corp will always beat you. And the final comment here is from John Fanjoy, username Citizen Fry. Free running is great. Anytime you can waltz right into a server and rummage, you probably should be. If R&D is unprotected, you get to examine every card for agendaness before the corp even gets to see it. That can be huge. You also get to eliminate most traps cheaply before they can hurt you. Aggressive Secretary, Project Junebug, etc. HQ isn't quite as good to hit. You might see the same operation over and over. But anything you trash from there is essentially costing the corp a draw. Misdirection isn't solely the province of the corporation. Suppose the corp installs ice on both R&D and HQ on the first turn. It's unlikely that they have enough credits to res both, so run the one you care about less first. Either they'll let you through, in which case, yay, free running, or... They'll spend a good chunk of their credits resing it, making it unlikely they'll be able to keep you out of your true target for at least a turn or two. If I'm Gabriel, I'll faint at R&D, so they'll hopefully leave HQ open. If I have medium in hand, faint at HQ, so they'll leave R&D open. If I have sneak door beta, start on HQ until they res there, then move on to R&D until they res that, then drop sneak door and really give them headaches. That was kind of a long thread, I know, but I thought there was a lot of good information in there. It's one that's uh, often referenced in the first couple of months of posts. Do you, again, have beginner tips that weren't mentioned here? Or, based on more experience, do you disagree with some of these suggestions? 
Again, reach out and let me know. I'll mention the contact information at the end, but it's also in the show notes. Lemuria Codecracker makes its return as we introduce the first data pack, What Lies Ahead. Now, before we get into the details of the pack, let me just talk for a second about how cycles work. So you had your core set, which is 113 cards, and then really the next set is the Genesis cycle, 120 cards. They designed the entire cycle at once. And so whatever they're trying to develop, whatever themes they have going on, are really fully implemented by the time that cycle is ended. That means there's going to be some back and forth uh, as you go through the cycle with some things getting stronger and other things needing a little bit of time to catch up, uh, different factions, different strategies. So when you're seeing the first pack, it's only 20 cards, only one-sixth of the entire cycle. Uh, as for the reboot project and the changes made here, in the core set, again, there were 113 cards. 14 of those cards got nerfs, seven on each side. But for the Genesis cycle, with its 120 cards, only half as many nerfs, just seven. Five for the runner, two for the corp. One of those nerfs makes its, uh, one of those runner nerfs makes its appearance in the very first pack. In what lies ahead, 14 of the 20 cards have been altered in some way. Seven for each side. Again, we're just focusing on the runner this week. We'll talk about the corp next week. The only nerf is to wizard. His influence is reduced from 15 to 12. A wizard's ability is three recurring credits to trash cards. There are several buffs in the runner side of the, the, of the first data pack. For Anarch, they have Spinal Modem, which is a console that provides one memory unit and also two recurring credits for icebreakers, though you can get a brain damage if you lose a trace during a run. Its install cost is reduced from four to three. Morningstar is a fixed strength fracture with a strength of five and costs two memory units. For one credit, you can break any number of subroutines. Its install cost is reduced from eight to seven. Uh, two criminal cards in the pack, Cortez Chip, a zero-cost hardware that you can trash to force an increased res cost. That increased res cost has been changed from two to three, making Cortez Chip sort of like an, a reverse easy mark. Peacock, which has, is a two-strength decoder for criminal, costs two credits to bump by three strength and two credits to break a subroutine. Its install cost reduced from three to two. And Shaper gets two cards. Zool Keymaster, although it's spelled as ZU.13, is a one-strength decoder. It's a cloud type. So if you have a two-link, it doesn't cost any memory units. It then is a typical or one credit to boost one strength and one credit to break. Its install cost is reduced from one 
to zero. And the helpful AI is a resource that gives one link, which you can also trash to give an icebreaker two strength for a turn. Its install cost reduced from two to one. Only two cards on the runner side in what lies ahead are unchanged in the reboot project. Imp, an Anarch Virus, which you can remove a hosted counter to trash a card being accessed. Uh, you start with two counters. And the neutral card Plascrete Carapace, which is a hardware um, with a three-cost install. The power counter you can spend on it will prevent a meat damage, and it starts with four power counters. Matrix Analyzer. Here we'll analyze the changes that the Reboot project has made. Uh, the, as usual, I like to get the comment on the nerf from the big boy. He's the one that's the lead developer on this project. And here's what he says about Wizard. The Anarch IDs, besides noise, are fairly interchangeable. So the ones that are a little ahead of the curve and most generally applicable got small influence nerfs. So noise, for example, as you may recall, his influence is reduced from 15 to 10. Wizards reduced from 15 to 12. That's a smaller nerf. I said, so your general analysis is that Anarch is strong. And he said, yeah, Anarch is the biggest winner from the nerfs on the corpse side. So they needed a lot of general power nerfs to not just be the default best faction. Some of the best decks against Anarch were Astro decks, decks that rushed accelerated beta test, and cerebral imaging combos, all of which are nerfed. So those corp nerfs mean that Anarch needs to be a little bit nerfed too to avoid being the strongest faction overall. As for the buffs, I will note a couple of them here. Morningstar now gives you the ability to have fixed strength breakers across the board, although you know, it's not as good as it seems necessarily. It's got, a, it's got a big install cost. It takes up two memory units. That strength five is great, but two barriers from the core set are still out of range. And so what are you going to do about your data suckers and parasites? You're going to need to find some memory. I guess you've got Grimoire for the memory. But reducing the strength from 8 to 7 is, is something. Peacock, finally a criminal decoder. And even though it seems pretty bad, I think a lot of people think Peacock is just still not worth... I mean, it's something. You don't have to splash in a card from another faction. And it's worth noting, I think, too, of the five current code gates, only two, Enigma and Victor, have two subroutines. So when it's two credits to break one, well, you're only spending one more. So they, and they both break Tollbooth for the same cost, both Gordian Blade and Peacock. Gordian Blade's always my default reference point. Victor only costs one more for Peacock. So that extra one credit means that now the difference in install cost being lowered to two compared to Gordian Blade's four, well, it's... You're not, you don't fall behind on the cost curve for at least a few uses. And the helpful AI, reducing the cost to one from two, uh, means it's now the same cost as access to global sec, which is the core set card that gives one link. That's good because now Kate has zero link 
naturally. So getting easier access to infaction link is good. Of course, as usual, we'd like to see that the um, faction-specific version of a card is better than the neutral version. So access to GlobalSec gives you one link. Helpful AI gives you one link. So what makes Helpful AI better? Well, that trash ability, which means that you can uh, run, you can add two, two strength to an icebreaker for a turn. And yet, does that make it good enough that it's worth the extra cost that you would pay for a rabbit hole, which is also two cost and one strength, especially since Helpful AI is a resource that can be deleted by the corp if need be? Yeah, probably not. So reducing the install cost to one to make it more comparable to GlobalSec is the, the logic, I think, behind the buff there. Mandatory upgrades. This is a new segment that takes into account cards that are newly introduced to the game through the data packs and evaluates how important these are ones that uh, are important to add to your deck. Uh, so think of it as a sure gamble for new cards. The card I'm going to highlight here, I think the card in the runner side that comes the closest to being mandatory is Plaskrete Carapace. Now, it's not mandatory all the time. It sort of depends on what you're playing against, what your local meta is. But if everybody's running Scorched Earth, tag and bag, well, Plaskrete Carapace is designed as a counter to Scorched Earth. Not a hard counter, not the only counter. You can also counter Scorched Earth. Uh, you can't really counter it by playing around it, can you? I mean, if the other player has the ability to tag you on their turn and then hit you with Scorched Earth twice, there's no way for you to have eight cards. So Plaskrete Carapace comes in to ping away some of that damage so you can't get beaten by just two Scorched Earth. Although I guess you could get beaten by three. So, if you're having trouble with Scorched Earth continuing to flatline you, maybe think about donning a Plastrete Carapace. In the Enigma section, uh, we focus on something to do with the flavor of the game. And the card I'm going to highlight this time is Inside Job. Inside Job is a run event that costs two, allows you to bypass the first piece of ice encountered. Uh, but we're not really paying attention to the ability here, we're paying attention to the flavor. And the picture and the flavor text, it all fits together. This is one of my favorite cards. I, it's always funny to me. So in the picture, you see this intense hacker with all kinds of wires embedded in his skull, a cord plugged into the side of his head. He's operating multiple vert displays. He's got his hands up in the air and He's got this intense look on his face, and he's, he's hacking for all he's worth. Meanwhile, the flavor text says, Hey, listen, I'm not asking you to do anything dangerous. Just let me into the building. And tell me which room has the weakest security. And please don't say the bathroom again. So look at what he's sitting on. Right? There's this white seat, and on the back of the seat, there's a pipe coming up from the back and going into the wall, it's clearly a toilet. He's clearly in a bathroom. So this is an inside job where this guy has gotten into the building. He's gotten past the first line of defense physically. 
and uh, is is hacking from the bathroom. I think that's just funny. It was always funny to my son when we were first playing, and he was like, you know, 10 or 11. So I guess I'm amused by 10 or 11-year-old humor, too. For our research station this week, uh, it's going to be maybe the thing I should have highlighted first, but since I figure anybody who's encountering this podcast sort of already knows how to play the game, um, I didn't. And yet, the rules of the game seems like a useful resource to have access to. So that's the research station this time. Now, unfortunately, you cannot go to Fantasy Flight Games' website and just look up anything to do with Netrunner. There's just nothing there. Uh, I mean, it's not that it's not there. It's just not searchable. So you can Google Netrunner resources, or Netrunner rules, rather, and it will take you to the page that still exists on the Fantasy Flight website here five years later, five years after they discontinued the game. And you can access it that way. Now, Null Signal Games has their own rules document, but uh, there's some changes in terminology. There's a reason I refer to Null Signal's game as Netrunner 3.0, because there's enough changes in just the terminology and the wording that it makes some things a little different. They also changed some, some of the, I think they've changed some of the timing. I'm not 100% certain on that. But the rules, of course, is a very useful uh, resource. What I'm going to do, though, is link to you a page on Fantasy Flight's website, which is still there, uh, that ha- it's their support page. So here you'll find the Learn to Play document from the second core set, the full rules reference from the second core set, their frequently asked questions list, some tournament resources. There's even some wallpapers. They're not rules related, but they're nice. They're pretty pictures that you can put up. Now, as I said, it's been here for five years already, so I don't know how long it will be there. But so as a hedge, I'm also going to include a link to the same page via the Wayback Machine on archive.org that was indexed um, shortly after the game was discontinued. And I would assume that will always be available, even if Fantasy Flight eventually disables their version of the page. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is from Alexi Action. The website for the game, the for the game, the website for the podcast is netrunner2.1.com. Number two, number one. The word though is point. That right now just redirects to the reboot project homepage. But we are. I am going to get up a website here that sometime soon, and one of the things I'm going to include there is going to be transcripts. There's been some requests for that, so I'm going to get transcripts for uh, the show up there. You can play the Reboot Project online at retechie.fun. You can t- contact me on Discord or BoardGameGeek or Reddit. My username is Auberman, A-W-E-B-E-R-M-A-N. I've also recently put up a thread on BoardGameGeek that you can subscribe to to receive notifications for when the new episode is coming out or any changes in the 2.1 game group. If you're on BoardGameGeek, I recommend going there. Obviously, as usual, the best place is Discord server. And my email address is anreboot2.1. There the point is a symbol at gmail.com. The AstroScript pilot program for this time around is the flavor text for Wizard that is included in the pack, What Lies Ahead. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. 
The stadium roared as the announcer called out his alias. His fingers twitched, and he began to recite the prime numbers backward from a thousand. He reached 601 when the horn sounded. Just yesterday, he had traversed the harlequin streets of New Angeles, jacketed against the drenching rain that fell in sheets. Gotcha, skate, man! barked a low-life data dealer from beneath his ratty poncho. Best stuff this side of the stalk. He pushed past the dealer, dodged a landing hopper, and vanished down a darkened alley. His destination was a dilapidated door, the green paint stripped and shards of broken wood hanging off it. He knocked on it awkwardly. It was opened by an attractive woman with jet locks and green eyes. Please come in, she said. He is waiting. His hostess led him past a bar, dance floor, down a set of revolving stairs, through a richly furnished lounge, and into a small office. Mr. Lee was an aging gentleman wearing a perfectly tailored suit. He sat behind a large metal desk. Mr. Wizard, he said. Please, have a seat. The crowd was gone. The stadium, gone. He was in the game. It was dark, and he flicked up his HUD. The four bots under his command waited for an order. His seeker program was running. Three opponents were making for the central tower. Two more had split up the sides of the map. He smiled. Call me Wiz, and I prefer to stand. He spent hours a day jacked in. He didn't want to spend a second more in a slumped position. You have never lost. It was not a question. With the ICG tomorrow, there are a lot of creds switching accounts. The biggest cast this year, no doubt. And you, you are finally going to lose, yes? Wizard coughed in surprise and anger. <laughs> I don't throw games. Mr. Lee stood up with placating hands. Hear me out. This isn't about money. If it was, I couldn't offer more than the winnings anyway. It's always about the money, thought Wizard bitterly. Mr. Lee continued. It's about sending a message. His sensors picked up a laser from the remnants of the armory, and he shielded as his strike bot was evaporated. Wizard ordered a flare toss from the Y-bot, flashed to the location, and opened up on a surprised opponent with his rapid flechette. His opponent's shields were almost always too slow, thanks to the help of a small latency program of his own design. Mr. Lee did seem sincere. What message? asked Wizard. When two great forces oppose each other, the victory will go to the one that knows how to yield. Mr. Lee sighed. You have built your career outside the system, 
you and your friends understand that the network is the ultimate means of control. I'm not following. Mr. Lee reached into his desk and brought out a small chip, no bigger than his thumb. Freedom for all from the network. For a time. Two of his opponents and their squads were down. There was a soul assault coming in seven seconds, and Pariah was out of position, almost assuredly a critical. That left Hawks and Sunesa. Sunesa was down to just a strike bot, and Hawks held the nexus, the tower he needed, his tower. Activating a speed glyph, four lights streaked across the battlefield toward the center. Wizard sat in silence after hearing Mr. Lee's plan. Anyone who was linking into the cast, and more, NBN routes it through the stalk. His mind was churning. This decision could change everything. All right, I'll do it. Sunesa was out and Hawks still held the nexus with a power and why. Wizard ordered his bots to rush the tower and punched up a smoke barrage. Red warning lights flashed as one by one his squad fell to shatters and flechette fire in the mad rush. But Wizard gained the entrance, taking several body hits in the process and his shield dangerously low. The tower contained the hook to the outside world. The power bot was holding the jump pad with a shredder. Wizard sidestepped and dived out of the way, strafing the heavily armored bot with his flechette. A slight disruptor field allowed him to dive through otherwise fatal fire and pop the bot in its weak point with a slider blade for massive damage. It deactivated and vanished in a string of pixels. Hawks and his Y-Bot held the top of the tower, and Wizard loaded up the Cyber EMP. It would activate upon his disengagement from the game, otherwise it could fry his brain. The closer he was to the Nexus, the stronger the signal and greater the chance of success. He hit the jump pad and shot upward to the pinnacle. As he landed, he sheathed his weapons. And Hawks and the Y-Bot began to unload. Then his shield was gone and his HUD was on fire and the game began to slide away. The crowd was roaring around him. He sat alone in an empty glass cage the displays fading around him. A sudden hush began to fall as thousands of screens went dark. The ripple effect would cover at least half the American grid. Wizard grinned. I'll count this as a win. <laughs>